0: I am so thankful this morning to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. How do you know the difference between a loyalist and a traitor? How do you know the difference between a patriot and an apostate? Benedict Arnold was elected captain in the Connecticut militia in March 1775 for what we today call the Revolutionary War. He fought bravely and intelligently and sacrificially for the American cause, uh, even a uh, little over a year later, uh, leading a military effort that uh, played a significant role in likely saving the northern army, which was being attacked from the south. He held off British General Guy Carleton and his troops from sailing down the Hudson River to attack the northern army from the north. However, over the next few years, Benedict Arnold did not get the recognition and military promotion that he thought he deserved. He received uh, or got a serious leg injury in a later battle that uh, rendered him unable to serve in field combat. Uh, He he married uh, Peggy Shippen, the daughter of British loyalists, and he also became the at least partial victim of a smear campaign um, by or from a man named Joseph Reed in Philadelphia, so that uh at the end of seventeen seventy nine Benedict Arnold was working with British officers to surrender West Point, which at that uh, back then was an American fort in New York, and even working with the British. Uh, through that to give them an opportunity to capture the american general george washington and a year after that arnold was fighting against men who had previously fought alongside him so benedict arnold is one of the most well-known traitors in american history and yet uh, his his national apostasy was complicated. His falling away from loyalty to the American cause, it was gradual. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, and still, when it culminated, it, it, was, it was treacherous. There's a reason that name has negative connotations for many people who uh, are familiar with American history. Uh, re- reportedly, even British soldiers did not trust and were offended by Arnold when they saw how he was willing to fire on even his own former comrades. And yet there is a deserting, uh, a falling away, uh, an apostasy that is even grainer than Benedict Arnold's. Uh, The stakes are higher, uh, the desertion is even more treacherous, and, and the consequences are even more devastating. So this morning is uh, part two, or the second look at uh, this third warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we took the first look at this over a year ago in November 2019. And so uh, that that the first part of that warning is, starts in chapter 5, verse 11, goes through... Verse 3 of chapter 6, and we're going to look at, focus on verses 4 through 12 this morning, but I'm going to start reading here in verse 11 of, of Hebrews chapter 5. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, Father, we ask that the effect Your Word would have on those of us in Christ this morning would be encouraging, would be edifying, would would spur us on with a greater hunger and desire to know You and serve You. And for those this morning who need to hear this warning as a very somber warning. Father, let it have its intended effect, not for their sorrow, but for their everlasting joy and for Your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over... Over a year ago, we considered the problem in this, this group of believers and then, the, and then the solution to that problem in chapter 5, verse 11, through the beginning of chapter 6 here. Uh, the problem is that uh, these Christians who are uh, mostly, if not entirely, a group of, of, of Jewish converts, Hebrew Christians, uh, they, they, they who had received this letter, they had become sluggish or dull in their spiritual lives. Uh, they had been Christians for some time, and instead of being able to teach others, they still needed to be taught the uh, the basics of of Christianity. Uh, they could only handle milk, and, and they couldn't handle the solid food that would ultimately help them continue to grow up into maturity. And, and the solution was to grow up, to to go on to maturity with with the foundation that had been established to to as, to build on that. Foundation so that, as mature believers, they could have assurance of faith, be reassured of what they knew to be true, and so that they could also teach others, instruct others, help others grow, and ultimately so that they could glorify God and so before the author of Hebrews moves on to some of this solid food of Jesus' superior priesthood, uh, the writer of Hebrews here he makes his pastoral concern even more pronounced, he provides this sobering warning, followed by reassuring encouragement, and then ending with what we, we could call some brief counsel, or at least things we could take as brief counsel for them. And so that's the lens through which we're going to look at this this morning, the warning, encouragement, and and counsel for these Christians, and ultimately, uh, in God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit for us this morning. So first, let's turn our attention to this perplexing and fearful warning we read, starting in verse 4, impossible, impossible is the first word in the original text, for it is impossible. And we find out what is impossible in verse 6. It is impossible for those who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, so we start with something very sobering. Who are these people who have fallen away? We get we get a list of five characteristics in verses four and five of of who these people are. They are they are those who have once been enlightened. Uh, they have tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, and of the powers of the age to come. Uh, there's there's a much difficulty and even controversy as Christians have tried to discern exactly who the author is referring to here. There, there's some who quite understandably see these uh, words as pointing to genuine Christians. These uh, surely those five characteristics uh, seem to describe someone that that would that would look like a Christian. Uh so some believe that this is describing Christians who ultimately do fall away, that genuine Christians who lose their salvation. There's others who read these uh, again as gener- genuine Christian believers who because believers can't fall away, uh this is only a warning of what would happen if they were to fall away. Now they won't fall away, but it's just a warning and its intended effect is is to keep them Verses seven and eight they'll help us understand what, what is happening here in verses four through six. Look at verses seven and eight again. For the land that has drunk, or for the, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here we have two types of land with two types of outcomes. The, the, the consistent thing is the rain that continually falls on the land. The one kind of land produces a crop that is useful and it receives a blessing. Uh, the other type of land, though, it, it bears worthless thorns and thistles and, and, and its end is to be burned. Uh, there's, there's lots of uh, Old Testament allusions here. And we, and we remember that these are a group of Hebrew Christians who... Uh, it's fairly safe to say would have been fairly would have been familiar with the the Old Testament. Uh, we we remember that God presented Israel his his people after he rescued them from Egypt with both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience before they went into the Promised Land, and we can read about those in in very important chapters in Leviticus 26 and and Deuteronomy 8. Choose a, you can choose blessing or you can choose. The curse based on your response to what God has done. To your response to God's word. Thorns and thistles bring to mind the effects of the curse that was directed at Adam when he disobeyed God in the garden. His disobedience resulted in a curse. And one of the effects of that curse was going to be toil in the land that would result in thorns and thistles rather than easier natural growth in seeking to cultivate the earth, which is Adam was told to command it to do. Uh, this this illustration here in verses seven and eight, it, it seems reminiscent of at least two prophecies in Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah fifty five in verse ten, we read, "For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but but water the earth." It says in verse eleven, "So shall my word that goes out from my w- or shall, shall my word be that goes out from my mouth." It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I, purpose. Or a few chapters later or earlier in Isaiah 44, starting in verse three, God says, "For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring." Brings to mind Jesus's parable of the of the four soils as well you can read about in Matthew Mark and Luke of course Jesus refers to four different types of land or soils rather than two but but Jesus in Jesus's parable of course it's still only two outcomes some seed falls on the path no growth ever takes place some seed falls on the rocks and you get some growth but ultimately it it fails you get some some seed that falls on the thorns or among the thorns and it uh starts to grow but ultimately it Fails, and then you have some seed that falls on good soil, which produces enduring fruit. And so, these these agricultural metaphors are are significant in Scripture. They're all fairly consistent. The rain often represents God's word or God's spirit, two things that are often almost sim- are synonymous in Scripture. Uh, the land represents people or people's hearts. God's word goes out and it does not return void. It produces that which he purposes and it, and it often produces fruit. So that even in Galatians 5, it's literally called the fruit of the Spirit, which God's word produces in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual fruit. But it doesn't produce fruit in every single person. And those who accept God's word, it produces fruit and those who reject God's word they continue ultimately to produce thorns and thistles so Jesus reminds us that just because someone looks like he has fruit or looks like he produces fruit doesn't necessarily mean he has true spiritual life some plants look like they are growing but they don't last they do not endure to the end And this is also the case in in this text, looking back at verses four and five, we have individuals here who appear to be saved. They are among the people of God. They experience all the benefits of the people of God. They are enlightened by spiritual teaching and God's word. In verse four, they taste of the heavenly gift. Once again, this is likely God's word or the or the Holy Spirit or, or both. Uh, that they share in the Holy Spirit. That Man, that language strongly seems to point to people who are Christians. They share in the Spirit. But I don't believe these are Christians. Uh, the word here can mean uh, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, as some translations have. It can mean uh, become partners with the Holy Spirit, become companions of the Holy Spirit. Uh, th- these people are, are an incredibly blessed position uh, they are not far away from God they are near to God and yet that's what makes their apostasy all the more insidious they taste it's in verse 5 they taste of the goodness of the word of God uh, these last two almost seem to parallel the, the previous two they also taste of the powers of the age to come again this, this, this might allude to the spirit's uh, super, supernatural heartwork and saving those Around them, or this might allude to the Spirit's supernatural work in confirming God's testimony. We read back in Hebrews two, verse nine, that the message of salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by us who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His according to His word, they potentially they're tasting of of, of the Spirit's even miraculous activity. Uh, The idea of false converts in the church and even exercising a kind of spiritual gift is actually not a foreign concept in in, in the New Testament. We read in in Jude 4, for example, for certain people have crept in, that is, crept into the church unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Uh, Peter warns, us in Second Peter two verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Think of the degree to which Judas Iscariot. Think of the degree to which he would have had to share in the Holy Spirit when Jesus sent him out with the eleven other eleven apostles, and Matthew ten. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Jesus, or, sorry, Judas, Judas did not. He did not accomplish those amazing, miraculous things apart from the Holy Spirit. And yet, Judas certainly wasn't indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What is described in verses 4 and 5 is what every true believer experiences who who goes on to produce fruit and endure, but it also describes how remarkably close you can be to salvation and fall away. And and if that isn't warning enough, back to where we began, we read in verse 6, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Let's admit, this this is a treacherous sin. All people stand guilty before God because, because although what can be known about God is plain to them, Romans 1 tells us they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Everyone has looked at God's work of creation and, and rejected him and, and, and that is offensive. That, the, the, what God, the judgment God renders for that is death. And hell. And those who fall away in this text have done that. They have rejected God's work of creation, but they have done something else. They have also looked at God's work of redemption and still rejected Him. They have the privilege, they've had the privilege of hearing the greatest news in all the world that God has not simply turned us over to judgment, which He could justly and rightfully do if He so desired. But that God, He he hasn't turned us over to the judgment. That He has taken on human flesh in Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died for sin, enduring the just punishment for our sin. That, That Jesus died for sin and that He conquered death by rising from the dead three days later. And that God freely offers forgiveness of sins on the basis of Christ's work for all those who will turn away from sin and follow Jesus, putting their hope in Him Alone, That offer stands today for everyone in this room. Turn away from your sin and put your hope in Christ alone. These people have heard that message. They're familiar with that message. They could tell you that message. And they, and they also experience the privileges that come with the work of the spirit They're, they they experience life in the church the, they experience the preaching of god's word the the reassuring promises that come with baptism and the lord's supper these are church members uh, they may even be used to accomplish supernatural works of the spirit they might even lead others to christ but they finally harden their hearts and fall away the sin is similar to judas it's, it's similar to those who called for Jesus' crucifixion. It's, as if, no, it's, it's af, as if after knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus for many years, albeit with a compromised heart, in the end they join the crowd. In the end they rewind and go back to the cross and they call it good and proper that Jesus was crucified. They hold Jesus in contempt. Another translation here in verse 6 would be that the, they crucify again to themselves the Son of God and disgrace Him publicly. So they reject God's work of creation, but then they also reject God's word of redemption. And the consequence of this sin is it is impossible to restore them. Uh, the text is ambiguous or it's somewhat uncertain whether this is talking about it's impossible for us to to restore them, or it's impossible, just in general, to restore them. Either way, one reaches a point of no return in terms of their hardness of heart. God is not obligated to give us endless numbers of chances. And you can only resist the Holy Spirit so long until God gives you over. Now we should be we should be careful here. We're, we're not told in this passage when specifically exactly this happens in someone's life. This text isn't instructing us to render judgments about when this has taken place. Uh, the Bible doesn't instruct us ever to give up on praying for anybody or sharing the gospel with those who are, are lost. This text is a warning that's intended for us to apply to our, ourselves. Be careful, Christian Be careful, church attender. Be careful, church member. Christianity isn't something to play around with. The consequences of falling away are catastrophic to say the least. The land that bears thorns and thistles, the the repercussions of this should take our breath away. That land is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Verse 8. So this is a sobering warning. And yet we should not despair. Thankfully, the author immediately here follows the warning with encouragement and then counsels. Secondly, turning to the encouragement that he follows this up with. In verse 9 though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation uh, the author does not necessarily believe any in the congregation has has committed final apostasy this doesn't necessarily this isn't something that's necessarily happened to anyone who received this letter he believes better things about this congregation. Uh, This is the only time in the book of Hebrews that he refers to them as beloved. Uh, He's not warning them here in anger. Uh, He's instructing them with pastoral care. He loves these people. Uh, He's warning them in this section uh, because they have become dull and sluggish in their spiritual lives. Uh, It's the same word in verse 11 of chapter 5 as at the end of the warning in Chapter 6, verse 12, it's the word nothros, which means lazy or dull or sluggish. In in, in verse 11 of chapter 5, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull, nothros of hearing. And then jump down to verse 11 of chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, nothros, Dull, lazy. They haven't committed apostasy, but the author knows that lazy spirituality can be a step towards apostasy. He is saying, I believe better things about you, but beware where this leads. Benedict Arnold did not become America's greatest traitor overnight. Uh, We have every reason to believe that Benedict Arnold joined the Connecticut militia with good intentions. He fought hard. He was even rewarded for his efforts. And yet as circumstances continued, uh, selfish thoughts were nurtured. One poor choice was followed by another poor choice. And by the end of the war, he was fighting for the exact opposite side. He did not endure to the end in his situation. The author of Hebrews speaks in this way with this sobering warning out of love for this congregation. He, he compared them back in chapter 3 with the wilderness generation uh, who was rescued out of, out of Egypt. Uh, he quoted Psalm 95 and told, he said, don't harden your hearts like those in the wilderness. The wilderness generation, those people to some degree, those were enlightened they shared to some degree in the Holy Spirit. They, they've certainly tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. And yet they did not make it into the promised land. They did not make it into God's rest. Just because you're associated with God's people does not mean you're truly converted. And at the end of the day... He, The author here doesn't know the exact status of every individual heart, so he gives them the worst-case scenario as a warning. And even in the warning, he changes the pronouns he uses here. Notice back at the beginning of chapter 6, he's using the first-person plural. Look at verse 1. Therefore, let us... He even includes himself with them there in verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And then in verse 3, he says, And this we will do if God permits but then in the warning, he 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 switches, but he doesn't switch to the second person. He doesn't say, for it's impossible in the case of you who have once been enlightened. No, look what it says. For it is impossible in the case of those. It's the third person. He he makes that's a you make that switch intentionally. That's not accidental. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And then here in verse 9. He does switch to the second person. Yet in your case, you, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Then he offers verse 10 in comfort. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is not the kind of God who's waiting for you to screw up. He's not the kind of God who's eager to see you fail. No, no, God does not overlook our works. Now, our works don't earn us salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works, right? Ephesians 2. And yet yet we're created for good works and God doesn't overlook the works that demonstrate our genuine salvation. God is the kind of God who sees even our smallest acts of obedience. Uh, we should not picture Him as trampling over Smaller plants, only concerned with the big fruit trees in his garden. No, God is like, he's like a meticulous gardener on his hands and knees, delighted as he inspects little immature plants, seeing little signs of growth and fruit that are coming or are to come. The marks of of genuine Christianity we find here in, in verse 10. They, they are not complicated. They're, they're quite simple. The, the, the way he summarizes spiritual fruit here is it's love for God's name and love for the saints. That's, I mean, that's one way to summarize what spiritual fruit looks like. It's not complex. That's fairly simple, isn't it? We love God. We he love the one who He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our treasure. He is the glorious one. And our love for God is shown in serving those whom God loves. We serve one another. Beware if you are growing more and more in your knowledge of God and yet finding it is not producing love for others in your life. And similarly, beware if you're pro if you love serving, I just love serving other people, but you have very little interest in God, knowing God and God's word. That should also be concern you now it's the love of god as we grow in our love for god it leads to love for god's people and service to god's people and we take comfort in knowing that god does not overlook anything that we do even when we're perhaps discouraged by very little fruit god does not overlook it the author of hebrews just he does not want these christians to despair Rather, what we see in verses 11 and 12, we see that he desires each one to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that they may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so third and finally, I think we find some counsel in these verses. In light of all that is at stake, what should we do? Three things. First, don't be sluggish and lazy with your spiritual life, but be eager, be diligent. That's what that word earnestness is pointing to there in verse 11. Be eager, earnest, diligent to grow on to maturity in Christ. Could your spiritual life be described as lazy? That's not a small thing. Uh, The author of Hebrews has a strong warning for us if we're in that position. That's not something to take lightly. Uh, There's not much neutral when it comes to life, to things that have vitality. There's growing or there's dying or dead. Are you growing? Are you nonchalant about your spiritual life? God has not hidden the secret to spiritual growth. He hasn't made it some sort of ancient puzzle to solve. He has given us His Word, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, God Himself. Uh, He has invited us to come to Him in prayer, to commune with Him. He has left us the church, His body, by which we are fed spiritually and in which we serve. Are these things the highest priority in your life? Or is your attitude toward them more take it or leave it? Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Growth does not happen apart from God's Word and apart from God's people. If if you're going to be sluggish about something in life, don't make it the thing of eternal consequence. Don't make it the thing from which true life is found. Don't be sluggish and lazy. Be eager and diligent. To grow on in maturity. Second, don't be sluggish, but persevere in hope. Persevere in hope. The author's desire here is that these Christians would have the full assurance of hope until the end. Maybe you're worried that maybe you're one of these who you're someone who worries that you might commit apostasy, this you might get to this point of no return in your spiritual life. Don't give up hope. Don't entertain that thinking. The reality is as we would all apostatize apart from God's grace. If you're worried about being an apostate, that's actually evidence of grace in your life. Uh, perhaps you have fallen far. Perhaps, perhaps you really are in a dangerous spiritual position. If you're worried you've fallen too far and you're actually worried, the good news is you haven't quite fallen too Far, cling to Christ. Listen to His voice. He speaks to us in His Word. He dwells in His people. Don't despair, but come and drink from the fountain of living waters. And God will not overlook your work and your love that you have shown for Him and for His people. Don't be sluggish. Persevere in hope. And and third, don't be sluggish, but, but imitate mature Christians, the writer instructs these Christians here in, at the end of verse 12 that rather than be lazy, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is another reason to be in Scripture daily. We have biblical examples of people who make both great spiritual mistakes. We also have biblical examples of people who patiently trusted God by faith. We don't know what life is is going to bring my plan was to preach this sermon almost a year ago uh, before the whole world was tossed into turbulence by a microscopic organism we never know what's going to happen next Uh, scripture though is full of examples of people who are persevering in hope amid life's unexpected twists and turns Uh, just a few chapters later in here in hebrews Most of you are familiar with Hebrews 11. The author is going to actually provide us a list of some of these Old Testament saints that we can imitate. And there's some surprising people who make the list in Hebrews 11. Imitate biblical examples. We ought to imitate historical examples. We have an abundance of riches when it comes to Christian literature and devotional biographies of saints who have lived over the last 2,000 years. So many of us want to would love to have a spiritual mentor, you know, someone to encourage us and and challenge us in our walk. I remember I I don't really like to make much of uh, uh, Christian celebrities. I did, but I did have the opportunity. I was brave enough to go and shake Sinclair Ferguson's hand one time, and I I uh, had just listened to him give a talk about his spiritual mentor, he had this wonderful message or mentor named. William Still when he was a young man so I went up to him I was 20 years old I said hi and I, the question I had for him is how do I find uh, how do I find a doctor still that's what he called him how do I find a doctor still and Sinclair Ferguson said oh yes I think what I would tell you is prayer I was like oh yeah I should have known that We want spiritual mentors. Uh, What a gift spiritual mentors can be. Examples who we can imitate and follow. But in God's wisdom and providence, He potentially did send you a spiritual mentor, but He sent them hundreds of years ago. That they might have a window and a, a voice into your life that even someone who is alive today might not be able to have. Think of what encouraging life change might occur if you maybe watched one less sports game or spent just a little less time scrolling Instagram and instead picked up a biography or a, a Puritan paperback, trying to keep good resources in stock downstairs. We should imitate biblical examples, imitate historical examples of people who persevered in faith. But there's also contemporary examples. Notice here in verse 12, that this isn't in the past tense. This is the present tense. Imitate people who inherit the promises. People in your life right now who you can imitate. This is just another reason we need the church. We need the body of Christ. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion. We don't have time for it, but we but we are image bearers. And what we do, we're made to imitate and we do imitate. All of us imitate what we find compelling. You imitate someone. The question is, who are you imitating? What are you imitating? What, are, what is in front of your eyes? Who are the voices you're listening to that you imitate? Are you imitating those producing spiritual fruit? Are you, in, are you imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? Or are you imitating those producing thorns And thistles. If you're a Christian, and the answer is the second one, today is not the day to go home and think, hmm, interesting sermon, and then move on. Today is the day to go home and think, look how close I am to apostasy. Imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. How do you know the difference between a loyalist and a traitor? How do you know the difference between a soldier and an apostate? From the outside, you, you can't always know, you, especially in a single moment. It takes time. You have to wait for fruit, and even fruit can be hard to discern at times. Benedict Arnold joined the Connecticut militia, much the same way many join Christianity, it's compelling, it's authoritative, it has nice benefits, it's uh, inspiring maybe, it's powerful, seems to have the promise to make my life better, something that I'm willing to agree with, it has something solid, it's truth, something I'm willing even to make sacrifices for. But also like Benedict Arnold's American military career, for many professing Christians, it doesn't result in something. Many professing Christians, it doesn't result in something that endures to the end. Christians debate the validity of what's called eternal security. The idea that you can't lose your salvation. And it, and it's true, the Bible does not teach that you can lose your salvation, but you can lose your false salvation. I agree with Richard D. Phillips who writes that the term eternal security can be somewhat unhelpful. Something like perseverance of the saints is, is better getting at what, what Scripture teaches. Hebrews 6 shows us that just because someone has a spiritual experience and is associated with the people of God, it does not mean they are eternally secure. We're better off To build our theology, text like Hebrews 3.14, which says, For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All those who are truly saints will persevere in faith. Hebrews 6 is a a sobering text. My heart resonates with the, the, the writer of Hebrews here at the end of this passage which let's conclude with these reassuring words this morning verse 9 though I speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do and we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Father, by your, by your grace, Let us not be sluggish and lazy with our spiritual lives. You are worthy of all our hearts, all our thoughts and affections and praise. Forgive us, Father, for our lack of diligence, for those times when we are prone to wander. Father, for anyone here this morning In danger of apostasy, Father, have mercy. Let the light of Your Word shine forth to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, in Your grace, empowered by Your Spirit, let us set our eyes on You, the High King of Heaven. We cannot and, and we will not persevere apart from your grace. So, Father, hold us, keep us, let us reach heaven's joys. We're all light, all sunlight is your light. Our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.